0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. TUC Radio Archives, The Quest for Water and the American West by Dr. Gray Brecken, Imperial San Francisco. This is part two of the history of San Francisco, the town that grew from 16 houses on sand dunes in 1850 to the largest city on the West Coast, in only 30 years. Brecken explains in the first chapter of his book, Imperial San Francisco, how the gold rush connected two important factors for city building, a swelling of the population and the growth of investment capital. But the mix of people and money was lacking another major ingredient, water. As the first wave of destruction of California was brought about by gold mining, the second was caused by the damming of rivers and the flooding of land for reservoirs, even eventually inside the protected space of Yosemite National Park. Brecken also explains the connection between the building of Los Angeles and the draining of farmland in the Owens Valley. He ends with an intriguing sketch of the creation of the Bureau of Reclamation. They made the quest for water a national issue. The Bureau claimed to supply water to small farmers, but ended up becoming the greatest builder of cities. And as this program from the TUC Radio Archives is rebroadcast in early December 2022, an extraordinary news item from November 17 headlines that, quote, the largest dam demolition in history is approved for Western River. Two weeks ago, U.S. regulators approved a plan to demolish four dams on the Klamath River and open up hundreds of miles of salmon habitat. That would be the largest dam removal and river restoration project in the world when it goes forward, end quote. Here's Gray Brecken and the story of water as he takes you back to the impact of the gold rush.
1: Tens of thousands of people suddenly arriving on some sand dunes, you know, um, they're not going to live there very long unless they can get water. And also, it's not only just water for them, it's water for industries and also water for firefighting because the entire city was made out of wood and canvas. It was a really sort of flimsy, jerry-built, sort of looked like a super mining town. And there's six months of drought in California with wind constantly blowing in from the ocean. The city burned down six times in the first three years of its existence, and that's not very good if you're a businessman, so you need water for fighting fires as well, too. Private water companies were founded in the 1850s, just after the gold rush, to first exploit the springs and the few small streams that were on the San Francisco Peninsula. Um, And to create flumes to bring that water into San Francisco, that almost immediately proved to be inadequate. There's a little creek, actually, that still provides 2 million gallons a day to the Presidio. And that was the original water supply for San Francisco. But immediately that, you know, the population outstrips that supply. And so then a water company is formed to uh, get water from San Mateo County, south of San Francisco, which has higher mountains and wetter mountains. And that began to be brought in during the Civil War by uh, means of a long flume from uh, San Mateo County. But that meant that all those creeks, which had formerly been salmon runs, uh, had to be dammed to create reservoirs, killing the salmon, of course, and bringing that water into San Francisco and depriving the farmers of that water as well, too. So it had dramatic environmental consequences for the sacrifice zones, but it enabled San Francisco to continue growing. And the thing about water is the more you have, the more you need, because it just attracts more people, and therefore it's again like the maelstrom. You have to have more and more of it. It keeps expanding. You also have to remember that water is not provided for people. It's provided for real estate. It's provided for raising the value of the land. These early water companies rammed a bill through the California State Legislature, which enabled them to use eminent domain to acquire these watershed properties, not only for the purity of the water but for rights of way, but the eminent domain then enabled them to grab whatever they wanted Um, as far as watershed lands, often much in excess of what they actually needed for future speculation, because the water would obviously make that land valuable, and that could later on be sold off as well, too. By 1875, it was clear that even San Mateo County wasn't going to provide enough water, so then the water company crossed the bay, acquired a small river over in Alameda and Santa Clara counties, dammed that, began bringing that in, in an underwater conduit across the bay, and finally... By the turn of the century, even that wasn't enough because San Francisco was growing so fast. So the city at that time then looked to the Sierra and through um, some very devious means acquired the Tuolumne River, which comes out of Yosemite National Park, dammed that, uh, the Hech Valley, and brought that into San Francisco. I should say it wasn't just into San Francisco, actually. The Hech system provides water for 2.5 million people. It created what they had Hope to create, which was Greater San Francisco, a city which sweeps around San Francisco Bay all the way into what is now Silicon Valley and up through Alameda County. And that is, of course, where these magnates who owned the water company also owned land.
0: Yeah, there's a map mapping the course of the Hetch Hetchy Aqueduct uh, into San Francisco. And uh, what is curious about it is that unlike the east bay water system it it has to cross the coastal mountain range which provided a huge engineering uh, problem because either you have to pump or do a tunnel and uh, it seems to almost imply that this strange difficult expensive course was made in order to pass by the real estate that was to benefit from it
1: there have been many studies of all the available water supplies For San Francisco in the 19th century, Lake Tahoe was one of them. They were considering turning Lake Tahoe into a gigantic regulated reservoir to bring water into San Francisco. They were just going to um, drill a long tunnel, using Chinese labor, of course, drill a tunnel through an intervening ridge and then just drain the lake um, and bring it into San Francisco via, I think it was a 180-mile aqueduct, which would be the longest aqueduct in the world, and bring it into San Francisco. That would have all been gravity feed. Um, San Francisco ultimately chose one of the most difficult I mean, uh, ways to get water from the Tuolumne River because it had to go through the Coast Range, which is very broad there. And as you said, it would have required pumping, which requires a vast amount of energy, or the world's longest tunnel, which they eventually built at great expense and great cost of life, in fact. And they brought it in that way, and that brought it into the South Bay and up the peninsula, which fertilized the land values all along its route and created um, that super city. Meanwhile, it was taking so long to build, it took them 25 years to build that system, that within five years, the East Bay cities, Oakland, Berkeley, and Alameda, decided to go it alone, and they acquired uh, water rights to the McCollumney River to the north, which had been formerly considered, and brought that water in within five years by gravity feed, by bringing it in through the Carquinez Strait area. So uh, this was something I really didn't understand until I looked at a map and saw the service area of the Hetch Hetchy system and realized it's not just supplying San Francisco, it's supplying two and a half million people in this extension of San Francisco outside of its own um, property lines, uh, its own city limits, and that's exactly where the people who promoted the Hetch Hetchy aqueduct had owned land, family estates, great estates which had been acquired in the 19th century and which imported water would only make phenomenally valuable if you could get it there, and particularly if you could get the, the public to pay for it. Because these great fortunes, in fact, I mean, you know, it's a myth that these are created by hard work and diligent free enterprise and everything. The greatest fortunes are made by tapping into the public treasury, sticking a tube in and sucking real hard. Uh, the public is generally never the wiser that, in fact, they are vastly subsidizing a private gain by means of in- increasing the value of arid real estate, either through aqueducts or for, through highways or public transit or whatever.
0: I found that really interesting, the public's role in both of these issues. In mining, it seemed that the public sort of inadvertently, up to this day, got stuck with the cost of mining that still expresses itself in superfund sites and in mercury coming down every day into the bay. Um, Water was already slightly different. Uh, there were bonds floated in order to finance this, and there was legislation necessary in order to get the imminent domain. So all of a sudden, the machinery of the state and tax money gets mobilized on an unprecedented scale.
1: Yes, and it's always couched in populist rhetoric. The people are going to profit from this. But in fact, what real estate, people profit from this um, by bringing the water in. And I'm glad you mentioned the bonds, because they can't finance these things without selling bonds, which means that, of course, very wealthy um, dynasties, such as the Tevis family, whom I talk about a great deal, they were holding the bonds through the banks. The banks are profiting from this. um, And these long-term bonds, of course, are, as they say, safe as banks. And so that's another way to tap the treasury over the long term. And bonds, of course, proved enormously profitable to these people who also were controlling the water company and the land along the way. So the banks are profiting. The families behind the banks are profiting. The water company is profiting. You know, The public is essentially being reamed all along. They're paying the taxes, which are going to create these great systems. And the other great system, of course, is the Bureau of Reclamation. And that's what I really deal with. In the book, and that was a tremendous revelation to me to find out why the Bureau of Reclamation was actually created.
0: That now extends the story beyond San Francisco uh, and brings up the comparison to Los Angeles. Do I understand it right that um, the beneficiary of the founding of the Bureau of Reclamation, the first huge beneficiary, was Los Angeles?
1: Well, that's, again, uh, it's a its a compelling myth, which, of course, you see in uh, dramatized in the movie Chinatown or Mark Reisner's great book, um, Cadillac Desert. Uh, the Bureau of Reclamation or the Reclamation Service was formed in 1902 by a congressional act. And it was formed, the enabling legislation was to bring publicly subsidized water to small family farms owner-occupied on 160 acres. Great populist rhetoric. But the first act, in fact, was to take water away from the farmers in the Owens Valley on the east side of the Sierra Nevada and divert the Owens River um, about uh, 250 miles southwest into an arid valley just outside of the city limits of Los Angeles called the San Fernando Valley where major speculators such as Henry Huntington and uh, the owners of the Los Angeles Times and others had already bought up the land because they knew the water was coming in And they made a killing on that. They made a killing from the public subsidy of diverting this river away from the farmers to create a city. And that's what the Bureau of Reclamation has been doing ever since. Despite its enabling legislation to uh, help small farmers, what the Bureau of Reclamation has morphed into is the greatest builder of cities that probably the country has ever known. And it's all through taxpayer subsidies. I mean, it's an amazing, um, I might even say an obscene perversion of the original intent of the National Reclamation Act. The first real project of the Reclamation Service is called the Newlands Project. And it was done in Nevada. It diverted the Truckee River into the Carson River Basin, a drainage area, to uh, create small farms and alfalfa. And unbeknownst to many people, Newlands had invested the Sharon Estate money in desert lands in exactly the area that the Newlands Project delivered water to. And although much of that land was sold off to small family farms, the estate company was profiting from that. Another project was the Salt River project, which diverted water from the Salt River to a dusty town in in Arizona called Phoenix, where the Sharon family also owned large tracts of land, too. So you find that, in fact, the Bureau of Reclamation served these private and largely invisible land companies, in fact. And one of them was the founder of the Bureau of Reclamation
0: I like the reference uh, honoring the Paiute and reminding people that they lost their water in that process.
1: Yes. When the Truckee River was dammed, and the Truckee River is not a large river, it drains out of, it's the, the sole outlet of Lake Tahoe, and it drains out and courses uh, through the western Nevada desert and drains into a terminal lake called Pyramid Lake, a very beautiful desert lake. And that was where they had given the Paiutes an Indian reservation right there. And the Paiutes relied for their livelihood upon the fish in the river and the hunting along the river banks. And once the Truckee River was dammed and drained and drained out of its uh, bed into the Carson River drainage, of course, the river went dry in the Indian reservation. The lake began dropping. The fish all died. The Paiutes essentially were left high and dry and impoverished. But this has happened over and over again. The Indians really didn't have any say in the disposition of their own water, in fact. And um, there was a seasonal lake called Winnemucca Lake to the east of Pyramid. That went completely dry. It's just a salt flat now. So again, you have one of these dramatic environmental catastrophes, a sort of ecological collapse, that resulted in order to divert water away and to turn it into capital on city markets somewhere else. The same thing happened in California, San Joaquin Valley, in the Central Valley, um, where there was a, a great ancient lake called Tulare Lake, the largest lake in California, which supported an, an enormous um, ecosystem. It was critical to the Pacific Flyway, to otters, to elk, uh, beaver, etc. cetera. Uh, it was a great vortex of life. And when the San Francisco um, capitalists came into the valley, particularly uh, Hagen and Tevis, who were partners with George Hurst. They wanted to irrigate their land, so they immediately diverted and cut off the rivers that fed into that lake, and it very quickly dried up. And today it's, uh, it's non-existent. Uh, it's just great platted fields, which are now going out of production because of the accumulation of salt. There's no, virtually no sign that a great lake once existed on that location. As a matter of fact, it produces huge clouds of dust. But all the birds, all the life, everything that depended upon that is gone. And there was actually an eyewitness account of that in the 1890s when it went dead, when it went dry for the first time. And a man was there, he had trapped otters uh, for money out in the lake. And he talked about how first the, um, the otters died and were left out on this salt pan. And then the raccoons moved in for the kill, and they just feasted on that until there was nothing left, and then they died too. And then, of course, all the birds vanished, and it essentially became a desert.
0: Let's go back to the San Francisco water system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Los Angeles had a an fairly easy time annexing the Owens Valley and uh, even had presidential um, agreement to it. But San Francisco had set its site on a national park.
1: Well, yes, it was a former mayor named James Duval Phelan, who was a, a wealthy banker, an Irish-American banker, was one of the largest landholders in California at that time. And he realized that if San Francisco was to continue to grow, and he was, he was very articulate. He was always, he loved giving public speeches and writing, and he always was writing about the imperial city and its destiny to become the greatest city in the Pacific, as long as it could get water. He realized that, you know, it couldn't do that without water. An engineer brought to his attention that there was a magnificent dam site in a glacial valley up in the Sierra about 1901. I don't think Phelan actually ever saw the place. He just saw photographs of it. And any engineer who saw this great granite tank with a bottleneck at its western mouth saw concrete in that bottleneck. Now, the only problem was that in 1890, Congress had declared that a national park. And once you throw a boundary around an area like that and declare it a national park, it becomes, in a secular society, the closest equivalent to holy territory, sacred space. So this immediately triggered off, you know, just a um, a fury, a nationwide fury, that a national park was going to be invaded uh, for this Reservoir. And many people, including John Muir, who was one of the few white men who had seen the Hetch Hetchy Valley, compared Hetch Hetchy Valley to Yosemite Valley. But none of that meant anything to Phelan. He was a true utilitarian, a pragmatist. And it took him about 12 years to do it, fighting against Muir and the fledgling Sierra Club. It nearly destroyed the Sierra Club by splitting it, in fact, between the conservationists and the preservationists. But finally, just before Christmas in 1913, Phelan was successful, and Congress passed what was called the Raker Act, which gives, gave San Francisco a unique variance to dam a river in a national park and to use it as its uh, reservoir, not only for water, but for the production of electricity, provided that electricity would be wholesaled to the people in San Francisco. That also has never been um, honored, actually. That, that provision of the Raker Act has always been evaded because the city almost immediately sold that wholesale electricity to PG&E, which provides it at retail for the city. But anyway, the point is that San Francisco uses half of Yosemite National Park as its watershed to provide water for not only itself, but for all the people in the Hetchy service area around San Francisco Bay.
0: So if you were to take like the bird's eye, the satellite view of California uh, and look at what the water reclamation, the water systems have done to the area, how would you describe what you can see now?
1: You would see what is probably the most thoroughly transformed natural landscape anywhere on the planet because of these vast water systems, over 1,200 dams in California blocking virtually every major stream, river, creek, everything. Um, That water is turned out of its beds. It is made to raise the value of real estate, to create cities, and in the process uh, cities and agribusiness transform the water itself. So the water, what water is finally turned back into the system has been thoroughly contaminated by the metabolic wastes of doing our business, of creating cities and agribusiness and all. And so you take pure water out and you put back a smaller amount of contaminated water. So it has devastated the ecosystems in California. And it's not only the visible water, it's also the invisible water, the groundwater in the aquifers, which have been are still being relentlessly pumped out. This is water which was built up over tens of thousands of years during the Pleistocene which are within the space of about 100 years has been pumped out to such an extent the parts of the um, San Joaquin Valley have dropped as much as 20, 30 feet. And this is permanent destruction of these water supplies. This is really groundwater mining. Those aquifers can never be replenished or restored once they've collapsed. So this is the legacy that we're passing on to our children, in fact. No fish, very few birds, no antelope, of course, except in very small preserves. And no water, fundamentally, no fresh water. Um, we're creating a vast desert, an urbanized desert in California. And you can't say that we weren't warned, because, in fact, all of this was done thousands of years ago in Mesopotamia, in Syria, um, in China. Uh, Throughout the world, it's happened over and over again, but we never seem to learn from the lessons of the past. And we're doing it in California. We're just doing it much faster because our technology is so much more advanced than theirs was at that time. I wrote another book, um, which I collaborated on with a photographer, uh, Robert Dawson. We traveled around California off and on for five years, driving and flying around the state to look at what was actually happening. Farewell-Promised Land is kind of the what's happening. Uh, Imperial San Francisco is the why It's happening, a sort of, one is the disease and the other is the sort of diagnosis of the disease itself and why we must be convinced, those of us on the ground must be convinced by those above us that urban growth is inevitable and that cannot be stopped because it's, of course, all for our own benefit. Well, it's not. It's for somebody else's benefit, really. What could be done? The only thing I can come up with at this point is that there has to be a far greater Um, level of public knowledge of how these mistakes have been made over and over again and about how we are doing it now too, to our own planet we are essentially destroying our own home George Perkins Marsh said this in his book in 1864, he said it was as if we were tearing the studs out of our house and burning the furniture and the wainscoting in order to seethe our our porridge Um, and that obviously uh, the results would not be very good In the end, we're we're doing it very, very fast now. So what you need is an educated populace. It's exactly what you're not getting. We're going in the opposite direction because entertainment, uh, media has essentially become propaganda through the medium of entertainment. And it's to divert people from these disturbing connections, in fact. So we're getting a less and less educated populace as the media is increasingly concentrated and devoted to getting people to consume more and more and to increasing more all the time so I you know the what we have to do is to fight for every independent non-corporate media outlet that we had and that means I think taking back public television public broadcasting people have to be made aware of what was stolen from them in the 1980s and 90s and to organize to take it back so that we can in fact educate ourselves to things that we might not want to know because much of this is very very disturbing but what we, what we must know in order to find solutions to it. But I wanted also to illustrate certain ideas of my mentor, Louis Mumford, who is, I think, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. And unfortunately, not very many people read him anymore, but um, Marx was one of the great thinkers of the 19th century. Mumford was one of the great thinkers of the 20th century because he taught us to see cities ecologically and we must do that you know the there's a paradox in that the larger the city becomes the more dependent it becomes on the natural world but the less aware people are of that dependence they just expect that You flip a switch and you get energy, you turn a faucet and you get water. Well, you have to begin thinking then about what happens at the other end of those lines. And that's what Mumford taught me to do, what he would teach anybody who reads him to do. And so part of the reason for writing the book is it's an homage to my mentor. And I wanted people to read Mumford. I still read Mumford all the time, you know, and he's such a volcano of ideas. I constantly get ideas from him, in fact. So really it's kind of an illustration of Mumford's ideas and a warning of what's to come because Mumford was always warning us about what's to come and so much of what he warned us about has in fact come true.
0: Which ones of his many, many books do you recommend?
1: The one that influenced me the most, I think, uh, well there are two, The City in History, in which he's constantly pointing out that what was past is always present. That When we're reading about Rome, we're really reading about now Um, and that there's much to be learned from the past. But the other one is The Pentagon of Power And he wrote that at the time of the Vietnam War. He was one of the first um, of the great intellectuals to come out against the war and to, uh, to point out that this was the mega machine, as he called it, in operation. The union of great corporations and large business, the worship of the machine, to create enormous environmental and social destruction. And he denounced it early on long before many other people were doing so. But he also saw it as finally rolling towards our own global destruction, whether through environmental destruction or through instant annihilation uh, through the release of thermonuclear weapons. He felt that the the mega-machine was the first machine that cities had created, that kings and emperors had created, and we weren't aware of it because, in fact, it's an invisible machine. It's created out of human bodies. Um, carefully inculcated with unifying thoughts by those who control the flood of information. And I think the same is true today. He saw it being rebuilt today, and I think that it's very true. It has been rebuilt. It's much more powerful now than ever before. We worship the machine exactly as he warned us that we shouldn't.
0: That was a conversation with Dr. Gray Brecken, the author of Imperial San Francisco. Brecken is also the author of Farewell Promised Land, You heard an interview I recorded in late 2000. Meanwhile, Brecken's book, Imperial San Francisco, has become a classic of urban studies and was republished in 2006. He is a visiting scholar in the UC Berkeley Department of Geography and has embarked on a new project. He and a team of researchers have spent years chronicling the often forgotten works of the 1930s New Deal. The Living New Deal Project is the record of a lost society of a once intensely public-spirited America. Gray Brecken received a Ph.D. in Geography from the University of California at Berkeley. You can follow Gray Brecken on his website at graybrecken.net. That's one word, G-R-A-Y-B-R-E-C-H-I-N dot net. You can hear this program again on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look for the newest programs page, TUC Radio's free to all radio stations and depends on the support of listeners like you. Your donation on TUC's website keeps this program on the air. That's TUCradio.org. My name is Maria Geladen. Thank you for listening.